One of the many good stories that came out of World War II was the story of Hugh O'Flaherty. He was a priest in the Vatican and the, was intent on serving the Lord and in doing that, ended up rescuing the Jews as the, the, the Germans advanced. He assisted downed pilots to bring them to safety. And he did all kinds of un, uh, undercover operations to the, much to the chagrin of the commander of the German forces, Colonel Kapler. Once Colonel Kapler heard about it, he began to, to ramp up his efforts to arrest and uh, prosecute the, the priest. So much so that he captured his friends and tortured them and then executed them, even his best friend, and pursued him until finally there was an Allied invasion and the Germans were captured in 1944. In 1944, Colonel Kepler was put on trial and given life in prison for his war crimes. At which time, then... Priest of Flaherty was confronted with the question, what am I going to do now about the man who tried to kill me? And as he reflected on the teaching of Jesus, he decided that he was going to visit Colonel Kapler. And it was about an hour both ways, and so he drove to visit him, and he went every month, and as he went, he learned of his needs and did what he could to bring resources to help him and to meet his needs. And he did this for 15 years. And in 1959, Colonel Kapler surrendered his life to Jesus because of the extended kindness of uh, Priest of Flaherty. And I tell you that story because he did it because he felt that Jesus asked him to. He loved his enemy because Jesus loved his. And I tell you that because I can tell you a story about him, but I don't have very many stories about how great I am at loving my enemies. I'm thinking about what I would do in that situation. I might go visit him. Maybe once under extreme conviction. Maybe twice, but not 180 times over 15 years. In Romans chapter 12, we're going to be confronted with what Jesus says about how to treat our enemies. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, we have the Apostle Paul giving instruction to the church that says, what does the Gospel have to say? about people who mistreat you. There's one thing you know, to do what we've done the last few weeks, which is to talk about what does the Gospel say about how you love people who love you? How do you, how do you treat people who are good to you, who are part of your uh, congregation? That I think I'm a little better at. That I think is a little easier. What we have in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, is we have 
really the instruction about how are we going to engage with those who are outside, how are we going to engage those who are against us, who are persecuting us. And so let's, let's read what he tells the church in Rome and see what instruction there is for us. Beginning in verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There we have what could be some of the most challenging instruction in all the Bible. How to love those who don't love you. How to be kind to those who aren't kind to you. And I want to do this morning kind of what I've done the last several weeks to remind you that even when confronted with difficult uh, and uh, challenging uh words from God, this is not a self-improvement project. This is not like, oh, I feel so bad, I'm going to go out and try a little harder now. That's not what he says. You see, because this whole chapter is based on the good news that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's based on the good news that when we were shaking our fists at God, He was reaching out His hand to us. When we acted in rebellion toward God, He acted in love toward us. So the chapter starts by saying, I appeal to you. So the appeal is not just Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The appeal goes throughout the rest of the book. This is an ongoing appeal that now when we talk about your enemies, you might act toward them in this way. I appeal to you. But I appeal to you because you are one to whom mercy has been shown. I appeal to you not because you're a religious person trying to elevate your good works while you diminish your bad works. I appeal to you because you have been shown mercy. You've been given what you don't deserve so that you might be embraced by God Himself. And so the foundation for all of our ethical actions in this world, the foundation for all of those is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God is doing for us in the person of Christ what we don't deserve and what we couldn't do ourselves. Namely, Romans chapter 5, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, 
we shall be saved by His life. So the expression of the mercies of God to which He's appealing right now, the expression that I want to point you to is the fact that you were the enemy of God at one point. I was the enemy of God at one point. This is not simply a theoretical religious um, review. This is practically speaking, I was in relationship to God like the people who hate me are in relationship to me. And the love shown me by Christ is the love that I am now to show those who hate me. And so the mercies that this is based on is that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is not a passive detachment, but rather an act of love on the part of God toward those who are His enemies. And so he continued, after saying the foundation are the mercies, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the way that the world treats people who are different from them. Don't do it like everyone else does it. Rather, be transformed by having your mind made new by the work of Jesus. Now, this, unless you've been under a rock recently, is pretty obvious, right? It's pretty obvious how the world treats people who are different. All you have to do is venture onto Facebook or Twitter and say something partisan, and you'll find out. There's no kindness, no dialogue, no simple, uh, appropriate response or discussion. It's, ooh, you're different than me and you're bad. And there's, a, there's an awful way that we treat those who are different from us. And he says, don't be conformed to that. That's not the new way of doing things. That's not the way of the, the people who believe the Gospel. The people who believe the Gospel, the church bought by Jesus Christ, is transformed so they react to their enemies in a different way than everybody else. There is no place for that kind of partisanship, whether it's about politics or the Super Bowl or healthcare or immigrants or anything else in the church of Jesus Christ. And so, he starts off by saying, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I'm just going to give you the kind of the quick way that I see this playing out in these next verses. This is about how we speak or how we talk and the things that we say toward other people. Next, it'll be instruction about how to think and how to view the world differently. And then finally, we're given instruction about retaliation. Or about what we do. So you could say this is about what we say and think and do with respect to people who don't like us. Now, just before I even go any farther, I, I want to kind of clarify the people he's talking about here. Bless those who persecute you. I mean, some of you have people in mind already. Some of you say, I have never been persecuted. I think what he's, what's happening here in verse 14 is he's following very carefully verse 13. 
It happens. He goes straight from 13 to 14. Mind blown, right? Because in verse 13, he says, pursue hospitality. The word for persecute is pursue. People who were pursuing you, coming after you, who were wrong, actively wronging you. That's, that's who he has in mind. But where do they come from? They come from the fact that you are pursuing hospitality. You are seeking to love strangers and make them into friends. You are seeking to show kindness to those who are not like you so that then they become insiders. That's what it means to pursue hospitality. And some of you who don't have anybody persecuting you, it may be because you haven't been pursuing hospitality. You've only been mixing it up with people who are just like you. And if they're just like you, they're not going to bother you very much. He's suggesting that part of following Jesus is to do what Jesus did and to go to those who are not like you and pursue making those kind of strangers, those people who are different from you, making them into friends. And when you do, some of them won't like it. Some of them won't like you. And so that's one of the one of the ways to think about the hospitality. One of the ways to think about who's persecuting others. Others of you have very clearly in mind people that are mistreating you for the sake of Jesus. Certainly that falls right in the middle of what he's talking about here. And what he says is to bless them and not to curse them. I don't know what you think about when you think of blessing or cursing either. I mean, you know, beyond when they sneeze, right? Then you bless them. But beyond that, what do you do with people who are persecuting you in order to bless them? Or worse, what do you do with them to curse them, right? I mean, what do you have in mind when somebody talks about cursing someone? You think of like a, this, this big pot in the back room and steaming and there's some you know, book of incantations and witches brew. That's not what he has in mind either, I don't think. You are to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I think that the best explanation really is in the next verse. Where he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What I find myself doing for people that, that don't like me, it's like I want, I want bad things for them. I want them to fail. I want them to slow down, be hurt, stop being bad, mean to me, find somebody else to pick on. And I want something bad to happen. So that they're slowed down in their persecution of nothing else. And so when something bad does happen, what do I do? <laughs> I rejoice. When something good happens, I think, oh no. Okay, guess what? That's completely backwards. That what I, what I was just doing is cursing and not blessing. And he says, you know what? Let's bless them and not curse them and do it this way. Wish them the best. Root for them. Cheer for them. Hope that they are happy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. It is not natural and it is not easy. And when they get hurt, weep with them. And I think, I would even go so far 
as to express my rejoicing or my weeping. So I'm communicating to them that I'm happy for you or I'm sad for you. Which that communication, I think, is the blessing and the cursing. You know, and what I find in my own heart, and I mean, I, I, I hope I'm not, I mean, I, I'd love to be alone, but I imagine I'm not, is that when someone's hurting me, boy, I, I don't want them to be very happy and I don't want them to succeed at it. And I want them to succeed at other stuff either. And so secretly I'm harboring the wish that they would be cursed. And God calls me out right away here and says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so as you are speaking, you see, the, the, the thing that happens when we speak is what's in our heart comes out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And so, what we speak with blessing or cursing is what's inside. And if we're nurturing the hurt, if we're nurturing the pain, and we're nurturing the anger toward them, what's going to come out is something angry. It's going to be rejoicing when things go bad for them. Or weeping when something goes good for them. And He says, do the opposite. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And from the abundance of your heart, go ahead and speak. So the first thing really is speaking. Be careful how you speak with those who um, persecute you. The next thing that he says is be careful how you think about those who hurt you. See, and this really is where it starts. I mean, if I was writing, I'd probably reverse the order, so think about what you're going to say and then say it. But nonetheless, they go hand in hand. Live in harmony with one another, or literal translation, literal translation of live in harmony would simply be think the same toward one another. So you're thinking the same thing toward one another. You're going to give thought to where they're coming from. See, that's really an interesting thing because a lot of times that really helps me simmer down when I give thought to where people are coming from. And that's what he's suggesting here is to live in harmony is to think the same as them. Figure out what they're thinking before you respond. Second of all, he said, don't be haughty. Again, literally, don't be high-minded. Or don't think high thoughts of yourself. That I'm superior or better than somebody else. But rather, he says, associate with the lowly. Don't be afraid to humble yourself. It is the Jesus thing to do. Then never be wise in your own sight. And you see, he just is going over and over and over the whole idea of thinking, right? Never be wise in your own sight. So don't be so self-satisfied. Don't be so self-righteous as to think that I've got no problems. The problem's all them. That's what it means to be wise in your own sight. It's to see yourself as good and them as bad, black and white, just like the world does when it comes to politics or whatever else. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But, he says, here we see it again, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so here four times in just these couple of verses, he 
suggests that you think differently about the person who's hurting you. Think the same as them. Don't put yourself above them. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And then he says, give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. I would love to be honorable. I would love to be quick to figure out exactly what the honorable thing to do is in every situation. And I'm terrible at that. I remember, I mean, one of the techniques that I use, and I use it even more when I was younger, when I couldn't figure out what to do, what, what would be honorable in this situation is I would think of an honorable person. Okay, my, one of my early mentors, uh, his name was Dr. Shive. He's gone now. And when I couldn't figure out what to do, I would take a little moment to myself and I'd say, what would Dr. Shive do in this situation? And then best that I could, I would go try and do what Dr. Shive would do. And I think that is the kind of thing he's talking about here. Give thought to do what's honorable. So maybe, maybe you're like me, you're not the quickest uh, person to figure out what's honorable, but find an honorable person that you do admire, somebody that is respectable, somebody that does the right thing more often than the wrong thing. So what would they do in this situation? And that's just a little technique that has really helped me. And we'll talk a little bit more about kind of why I think it's helpful. But it gives you that space before you react to say, what's the honorable thing to do here? And again, my honorable is simply, how can I even make this person look good in the eyes of others while they're hating me, while they're mistreating me. I mean, nobody said this is an easy thing to talk about, right? This is, this is like some of the hardest stuff that any of us will have to deal with because people are hard to deal with. But he says, you need to find ways to think rightly about those hurting you. Think about where they're coming from. Think the same as them. Don't put yourself above them. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And give thought to what is an honorable action toward them. And if it's not hard enough to say the right thing or to think the right thing, he gets to the harder thing right now about how we're going to act and uh, not retaliate. And so he says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so, the goal here is to live at peace. To live at peace. And the encouragement for those who have peace with God now because they trust the Gospel will be that they live at peace with others. But, the beautiful thing here is that he qualifies this. He's realistic enough to know you're not going to be at peace with everyone. You may wish you were. I wish you were. But it isn't going to happen. And so he qualifies it in two ways. He says, first of all, if it's possible. And it's not always possible. If it's possible, live at peace with all. I, I did have somebody come up to me even between services just say thank you because I realize what I'm hoping for with my sister is not possible. And I'm going to leave it to the Lord. 
And that's part of why He qualifies it. If it's possible. The second qualification is related. And that is, as far as it depends on you. As far as it depends on you. Live at peace with all. See, I'm... I, I told you I'm not very good at this. Because, for the most part, if anyone doesn't get along with me, it's their problem. It isn't my problem, right? Never, never is it my problem, I'm sure. Marcia's sort of doubling over with laughter in the front row, but don't mind her. Because the reality is, it takes two to tangle, doesn't it? And in virtually every conflict, I'm going to have to own some of the problem. And that's really where he goes. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. So own your part of it. And control what you can control. I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday. saw an interview this morning from Drew Brees, the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints who aren't in the Super Bowl. And of course, being, you know, the... Uh, sensitive media type this interviewer was. He just said, so, should you be playing in today's game? <laughs> somebody, saw, somebody saw the division playoff, didn't they? They knew that was the answer. And Drew Brees just said, you know what? There was a bad call. But there were a number of things that we could have done to win that game that we did not do. Because he said, I always focus on what I, to control what I can control. To do what I can do. And not have to count on everybody else to do their thing. And that's the idea here. I mean, you could say it's a sports analogy if you want. If possible, so far as it depends on you, control what you can control about the situation. And then aim to live peaceably with all. And so, I mean, I love that because it is realistic because it's not, it's not always possible. But he does suggest that there, is some, there are some things you can do in a high-conflict, high-hurt situation. The first one is never avenge yourself. Never avenge yourself. Which means don't think in terms of revenge or getting back at. Or settling the score. However you want to talk about it. Never avenge yourself. Now, it, it, interesting. He just gave us a little wiggle room, didn't he? If it's possible, if it depends on you, live at peace. Whew, thank you for that. Never avenge yourself. Oh, wiggle room gone. Don't avenge yourself. I mean, it would be so much better, wouldn't it? If he said, tell you what. You're going to average things out. 75% of the opportunities you have, don't avenge yourself. But the other 25, use use your allotment wisely. He doesn't do that. It's like never avenge yourself. Leave your fists at your side. Don't swing back. Or in the words of Jesus, turn the other cheek. Now, again, these are, things, these, are, these are things that are hard to do, but are built on the mercy of God. 
that God, when it came time for us to be His enemies, He demonstrated His love. When it came time for us to be His enemies, we were reconciled because of the death of His Son. Talk about a cost for leaving your gloves down. It cost God His Son. Never avenge yourselves. Then he tells how, kind of how to do that. But, leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. This is... I, I think this is a fine translation. There are a couple other translations that uh, say, but give place to wrath. Maybe, maybe the one you're looking at says that. Give place to wrath, which I think is a better translation. At least it's one that helps me more. So I, I, I think in terms of space, right? So give a place for God's wrath. And what I think about there is I think about the, the time when somebody mistreats me and I'm immediately driven to respond. Okay? The instruction here is create some space. Before you respond, Create some space. Let it be space for God to do something. Let it be space for God to act. So here, I'm, I'm wronged, I'm mistreated, I'm hurt. And I can retaliate right away, but I could also create some distance or some space here and let God do something. That's the invitation. Give a place for God's wrath. So before I do anything, I'm going to let God do something. And to me, that, that helps because I don't have to just lash out because somebody lashes out at me. In fact, the only thing that is going to change the equation is something from the outside which is going to be an act of God. Which is what I want to invite into this situation. Give place for the wrath of God. Now, Then He encourages us. Then He encourages us, you are right to leave space for God's wrath because it is written. See, this is the way that the Christian life works. The Christian life is a life of faith. God gives us something in the Word and we believe it. Something is written and we have to decide, am I going to believe it or not? Am I going to act contrary to what's written there or am I going to act in accord with what's written there? So that's why he says it is written. He puts it out there for us to just ask. Am I going to believe it or not? And what we're supposed to believe is that God actually says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God claims that He will take vengeance. That He will repay. Are you going to believe that or not? That's the question here. In other words, are you going to leave a place for God to do that? If you leave a place for God to do that, it is written that He will. Which do you suppose will be more effective? Your avenging yourself or God 
taking vengeance and repaying. So think about that. That's, that's, what, that's how He's priming. This is, this is what it means to be a person of faith. Is I'm actually going to trust that God's going to do that. Even if I would much rather lash out. So if I'm not going to avenge myself, what action do I take? If I am going to leave space for God to be, uh, for His wrath and for Him to take vengeance, what am I going to do? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Find a way to be kind to your enemy. This is awful. This is just awful, isn't it? It is just contrary to what I would naturally do. This is not being conformed to what I naturally do, but being, I can't do this if I'm not transformed. And so practically looking at the person who's hurting you, saying, what do, they, what do they need? Where are they coming from? How can I bless them? And completely contrary, absolutely you must trust God for this, otherwise you can't do it. It's superhuman to do this. So you meet their practical need. And when you do, this is the crazy thing. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on your head. I don't know what image comes to your well, I do know what kind of image comes to your mind. I mean it's a crazy image, isn't it? Of somebody sitting there with literally fire and smoke on their head. I don't know what to do with that image exactly. But I think the best way to think about it if I was going to modernize the way that I would say that without this burning coals of fire on their head image, I would just say, if you will show kindness to your enemy that will turn up the heat. That will turn up the heat. They will feel the heat because of your kindness. They're not expecting that. They're expecting the retaliation. They're expecting you to act like uh, anybody else would act. And so you act with kindness. It's going to turn up the heat. And what's the heat going to do? He's going to do one of two things. The heat will have the desired effect, which would be their humility and repentance, and then you will have won your brother or won your sister. So then your kindness will, like the kindness of God did for you, your kindness will lead them to repentance. But probably not always. Sometimes your kindness will turn up the heat and they will stiffen their neck and they will be worse. At which time, you have left a place for God's wrath. So that God will deal with them. And in the final judgment, that will feel very much like burning coals of fire on their head. And so as I see this, God's trying to get us to, to leave space. So this, as we create space for Him to act, he's, His action will do one of two things. It will soften them and you, uh, humble them toward repentance or it will harden them toward His judgment. But either way, I'm going to intercept 
my desire to retaliate and trust that God will act there. And then he summarizes the whole thing with these with, with this sentence, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, isn't that just the way that it feels inside when somebody has hurt me and I want to hurt them back and I, I think about ways to hurt them back and I devise you know, ways to make them suffer back and the bitterness wells up in my heart? It's that evil he's talking about. He said, "Don't over, don't be overcome by that. Don't let that win the day. But rather, overcome evil with good." See, there is a big commitment to good here, isn't there? Chapter twelve, verse two says that you might know it is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Where he says earlier in verse. Um, was it in verse 8, I think, where he says that you um, get rid of what is evil and cling to what is good. And here he says, don't overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't overcome evil by doing nothing. You overcome evil with good. Which really is, I mean, going back to kind of where I started... This is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing about what it means to be a Christian. Because what Jesus did for me on the cross was to overcome my evil with His good. The Gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is exactly that. It is news that God, that God has overcome evil with good. You think about the final hours of Jesus' life and all that He went through and His mockery and His trial and the torture and all of the evil that He endured. He did it so that He might do good even for His torturers. Even for you, even for me. So like Jesus, Paul summarizes it and says, overcome evil with good. Augustine, Augustine said this. I mean, Christians have been struggling with this for years. Okay? This is not new for us. He said, Christ made a pulpit of the cross. And the great lesson He taught Christians was to love their enemies. Really, I want to remind you, this is, this is how He taught it. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. He's asking us simply to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. In all of these hard choices and all of these difficult things to say and to think and to do, we're simply asked to walk the way of our Master. And to be kind to those who are enemies. One of my goals always is not to, not to beat you up and make you try harder and do better. My goal as a pastor really is just to remind you of the glory of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And let that invite you into a different kind of life. And you see, 
This is the perfect example. It is really what Jesus has done for us on the cross that invites us into a different kind of life toward those who hurt us. And so rather than go back over all of the things that you need to do or not do, what I'd rather do is to stop right now and be reminded with you of the death of His Son that reconciled us to Him. So, to do that, we're going to do that in the way that Jesus asked us to do it. By receiving the Lord's Supper. Jesus told us, do this to remember Me. And so, what we'll do is, there's two tables in the front, two in the back, and one in the balcony. It's just during the next song, if you want to get out of your seat and come uh, grab the elements and return to your seat, we'll all celebrate uh, together um, in just a few moments. But I just want to say, this is really the remembrance for those who've been reconciled to God. If you're here this morning and you were just exploring Christianity and thinking about whether it's going to be a fit for you, then feel free to do that. But to remain in your seat and not to participate with us, that'll be fine. Because really, this is a simple enough invitation from Jesus that you could, you could receive it this very morning. Simply to say, God, I was your enemy and I don't want to be any longer. I believe that the death of Jesus is all that needed to happen so that I could be reconciled to You. Would You, would you forgive my sins and grant me peace with You? And just a simple prayer like that is what He's talking about in this verse. It will reconcile you to God. And, and if you, you want to do that even in your seat right now, then you can and then get the elements and celebrate with us. But this is our look back at the fundamental reconciliation that we have with God that enables and motivates our reconciliation with other people. So let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Our great God and Father, this has been a heavy topic made heavier by the realization that at one time we were Your enemies and You reconciled us to Yourself by the death of Your Son. So I just want to publicly say thank You. On behalf of my friends and brothers and sisters, I want to say thank You for doing for us in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. And so as we remember His death now, would You be pleased to heal our hurts, heal our hearts, motivate us to worship, and motivate us to write words and thoughts and actions. So we'll thank You in the name of Jesus.